Hi, I'm Allie Roark. I'm Wilson Galt. And you're listening to the Fledgling Theories Podcast, a podcast where once a month we talk to you about some new bird research. Today we've got an article about brood parasitism. So, gray jerrygon hosts are not egg rejectors, but shining bronze cuckoos lay cryptic eggs. This is by Rose Thorogood, Rebecca Kilner, and Justin Rasmussen. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Fledgecast and uh, find the link to this article on there. So we're actually going to start sort of a theme for the next two episodes. We're doing a couple articles about brood parasitism. So Ellie, what is brood parasitism in birds? Basically, it is when one bird lays its egg in the nest of another bird and therefore doesn't have to raise that chick, gives the responsibility for raising that chick to another bird. And this is surprisingly common in birds. It has evolved multiple times, sort of independently in birds, and there are many species all across the world that do this. Yep. Yeah, the, the kind of big names in brood parasitism are cuckoos and uh, cowbirds. Yeah, they, there's a lot of species of both that, that do this. Yeah, so in North America, you might be familiar with brown-headed cowbirds. They're a brood parasite. In Europe, there's a common cuckoo that's a brood parasite. Um, but many other places, there are brood parasites also. Yep. So one of the interesting things, um, I mean, there's a lot of background about brood parasitism that we'll sort of touch on as we go along, but it's not, it's, it's fairly common for a brood parasite um, to lay an egg, and frequently that egg might be bigger than the host eggs. And this means sometimes that the chick will hatch bigger than the host chicks, and then that big parasite chick can um, beg louder and get fed more, or it might be able to push the host chicks out of the nest or something. So it's very common that the host chicks actually don't survive in a nest that has had a parasite laid in it. Right. Yeah, you can imagine that this is a pretty uh, costly thing to have happen to your nest if you're the host. It takes a lot of energy to feed a bigger chick, to uh, feed a chick that's not yours and um, that might compromise your own offspring. And for the, on the flip side, for the parasites, it's a, a huge energy savings to be able to not have to feed your own chick. And so you end up having more energy to spend on uh, breeding and laying those eggs to begin with because you don't have to rear the baby. Yeah, I, I seem to remember that brown-headed cowbirds in North America can lay tens or hundreds of eggs in a season because they just put all their energy into egg laying and they're not defending territories or that sort of thing. Right, which is very different than another species that might lay a four or five egg clutch and then incubate that clutch and then raise those kids and maybe they'll do that twice in a season, three times for, you know, very um, prolific species. But to get to the point of what this article is looking at and the theme that we're going to be looking at, in terms of evolution and natural selection, if you're a host species and you end up losing all of your chicks and instead raising this parasite chick that's a different species entirely, you've completely failed to pass on your genes in that generation. And natural selection should weed that out really quickly. If you make this mistake of raising a different species instead of your own chick, uh, whatever sort of traits cause you to do that, sort of should be selected against and you're not going to have any offspring so your genes aren't going to end up in the next generation you would kind of expect that this would disappear really quickly this this parasitism or this accepting of parasites you would think 
that birds would evolve some way to figure out when they've got a parasite and to not raise it. Right. But it's kind of an arms race between parasites and hosts because the hosts are trying to kind of quickly evolve more advanced defensive strategies so that they don't have to raise a parasite chick and put all this energy into something that's not going to carry on their genes. And then the parasites are simultaneously evolving kind of more advanced tactics for deceiving the hosts and trying to make their eggs blend in or, you know, make their chicks blend in. Yeah, so one thing that sort of hosts have default has evolved as a defense is that if a parasite lays their egg in the host nest, if the host can recognize that egg, they can push it out of the nest. And that's a defense because then they don't have to worry about that parasite chick anymore. Yeah. But the, Or, you know, peck a hole in it or something. Yeah, somehow destroy yeah. that egg. Sure. Um, and so in this arms race that you're talking about, the parasite's response to that is they try to get their egg to blend in or to become unrecognizable yeah. in some way. They also, there's a number of documented cases of the... Um, parasite evolving to have a harder shell as well, so that you can't peck a hole in it quite as easily. So that's kind of what this article is looking at. Um, this article, the host species is this gray jerrygon bird. Which, and just for the record, we should say that we don't actually know how to pronounce jerrygon or garygon or whatever, however you say it. So if we're saying it terribly wrongly and you're a New Zealander who's very familiar with these birds, I'm sorry. Yeah, this, this is not our <laughs> geographic area of expertise no. here. Anyway, that's the host, and they've got these shining bronze cuckoos that are the parasites laying the eggs in these nests. And so this article is looking at whether the cuckoos are, have, have evolved some way to make their eggs be inconspicuous or hard to detect. Um, and, you know, with the assumption that maybe if the, if the jerrygons are trying to eject these cuckoo eggs because they don't want to be parasitized, if the cuckoos can make an egg that blends in, then that's sort of a, a, a defense. Right, so this particular host builds like a little dome cup nest, which is, you know, kind of like making themselves a little cavity to nest in. And so um, the shiny bronze cuckoos lay a dark egg. And the idea is, why do they lay a dark egg? You know, is it to prevent the host from rejecting that egg? Yeah, and this, this nest type is really critical here. So if you're thinking about making an egg blend in, you might be sort of thinking about camouflage or something, and you might be thinking, well, the egg should be the same color as the host egg, or it should have the same right. speckle pattern. Yeah. Which would make sense if you're in a nest that had a lot of light coming in. Yep. Like a robin nest or something like that that's open to the sky. But in a dark cup like this, where they've got a domed roof that's built over the top, it's very dark inside there, and so probably they can't see the color at all or not very well, and right. really all they're seeing is sort of, um, if, if something is very darkly colored, they probably can't see it very well at all, and if it's brightly colored, they're gonna be able to see it. So you could picture a really dark red or a dark purple, even though that color is distinctive to us in daylight, if you picture that in a really dark setting, you're not gonna be able to see it very well compared to say, a light brown or a light gray egg, which is sort of gonna appear more white. Right, if the luminance is low, in other words, it's effectively camouflaged yeah. in the nest. So this article did a few things. They made some um, fake model eggs of different colors. They made some eggs out of clay, and they basically ex sort of put these in some 
gray jerrygon nests to imitate a parasite egg being laid in the nest. So they made this clay egg and they painted it white or I think they I think the clay was white. So they left it white or they colored it with a dark marker or they colored it with a really dark marker. So they had sort of three colored eggs, a really light egg, a medium dark egg, and then a very dark egg. Right. The idea was that they wanted to imitate an egg that a cuckoo might lay, the color, the luminance of that egg, the luminance of the egg that the host lays, and then an even brighter egg than those other two options, and see whether or not the host recognized the clay egg and what they did about it. Yeah, and so you might, you know, you might initially think, well, the host might, might detect those light-colored eggs and kick them out of the nest. However, um, based on previous work that's been done with some of these birds, they weren't necessarily expecting that because in previous work, these hosts have not been found to eject parasite eggs. Right. Um, and in similarly related species, there's similar things. But other cuckoos have been found to eject cuckoo eggs. Right. So the whole point of this study is trying to get at, you know, why do cuckoos lay these camouflaged eggs? especially if the hosts are not really egg rejectors. <laughs> like, what's the mechanism that's causing this, uh, you know, kind of advance in camouflage technology, for lack of a better word, um, if, if the hosts are kind of indiscriminate anyway? So they had these three different colored clay eggs. They had the light clay egg, the medium dark clay eggs, and then the dark clay eggs, which are about the same luminance as the shining bronze cuckoo eggs. And they measured those with the spectrometer to find the luminance. They also measured the luminance of the nest lining inside the nest to sort of see how bright these eggs would appear against the background of the nest. And then they put these clay eggs into nests of gray jerrygons um, while the gray jerrygons were sort of laying the brood. So after the jerrygons had laid at least one egg, they would put this clay thing in as if a parasite had laid that nest or that egg there. Right. And they were trying to get it before the the jerrygons had finished laying their clutch. And so they did this in 20 nests. They split those light and medium and dark eggs up into 20 different nests and put a single thing in there. And then they watched to see if the host would kick that egg out of the nest. And so the host can sort of like use their bill to sort of scoot an egg and topple it over the edge of the nest to get rid of it. Yeah. So they were looking for that, or they were looking to see if another cuckoo might eject that egg. Right. What happens when another cuckoo shows up to that nest to lay their egg and sees that there's a, a non-host egg in there? Are they able to recognize it as a non-host egg? What do they do with it? Etc. And what they found was that the hosts, the gray jerrygons, never rejected the model clay egg. And this is in line with previous work, too, that there's only been one case, I think, that they talk about in here where Jerry Gon was seen ejecting an egg, uh, and that was in a, that was a model egg, a clay egg, not an actual parasite egg. So the Jerry Gons are not known to eject parasite eggs at all, yep. and that's what they found here, the yep. same thing. Yeah. And then they found that uh, in three out of four cases where a cuckoo showed up to parasitize the nest and there was already a model clay egg in there, they got rid of the model clay egg. The cuckoo did. The cuckoo did. Okay. So why would this be? Why would a cuckoo show up to a nest and see that there's a cuckoo egg already in there and kick it out? Well, because cuckoo chicks, once they hatch, kick everything else out of the nest. Yeah, in or order peck to, it to death Yeah, or, or peck it to death, right. Um, and so 
if there's already a cuckoo egg in the nest, that cuckoo egg is going to hatch first, potentially, and, and kick your egg out of the nest. And so if you're a new parasite cuckoo, it's in your best interest to kick any previous cuckoo eggs out of the nest before you lay yours. That's right. And cuckoos occasionally will also, if there's no cuckoo egg in there, they'll kick a host egg out maybe to keep the number of eggs the same to make it harder for the host to detect parasitism. Sure, it's so, like a little, you know, clutch-sized deception. Yeah. So the cuckoos, um, so, so you said in, there are four nests where there was already a clay egg in the nest, and a cuckoo came along and parasitized it and kicked the clay egg out in how many of those four nests? In three out of four nests. Okay. So it's a really small sample size, but it is 75% of the nests, which is uh, a, a pretty big result. And I think in that last nest, if I recall correctly, in the fourth nest, the cuckoo laid an egg and kicked a host egg out instead of the model clay egg. Correct. Do you remember what color the model clay egg was or what the luminance was of the model clay egg in I, that fourth case? I don't, but I can look it up. Um, it doesn't say. Okay. So even though the sample size is small, this suggests that the, the kind of camouflage element of the cuckoo eggs laying a really dark egg that blends in with the nest is to prevent your egg being seen by other cuckoos because it really doesn't matter whether the egg is seen by the jerrygons because they're not kicking them out. <laughs> yeah, if there's some sort of evolution of a cryptic egg going on, that evolution is being driven by the other cuckoos, not by the host rejecting it. Right. However, of the three different colors of eggs, the cuckoos were kicking out... Um, well, they kicked out two, two of the very dark eggs, one of the medium dark eggs, and they didn't kick out any of the white model eggs, maybe because yeah, I think none of, yeah, none of the nests that had a white model egg got parasitized again. So there was just no test of that. Oh, that's right. So it's a very small sample size. You can't actually tell if there's a difference in how the cuckoos are distinguishing these eggs. But, I mean, the, the next question would be if it's only a cryptic egg. It has only managed to be deceptively cryptic if it can't be detected. Right. If the cuckoos can still detect it, even yeah. when it's dark... Then is what, it really a cryptic egg? Yeah, then that's not an evolution of crypsis at all. That's, yeah. Um, because the whole point of crypsis is that it can't be seen. So yeah. so I think as these, as these authors say, to really figure out whether there's a selection for a dark egg color for the purpose of hiding the eggs from other cuckoos... You'd need a bigger sample size so that you could really have enough rejections, you know, enough ejections of dark eggs versus light eggs to figure out whether the light eggs are being kicked out more than the dark eggs. And if they're not, then there's not really any selection going on there. Right. Yeah, it's just hard to say anything about the, the luminosity element of this study because of the small sample size. I feel like that's one of the challenges of doing studies with parasites is that sort of by their very nature, parasites can't ever become too, too common. Um, because if you had a host species and you had a parasite laying an egg in every nest of the host species, if those parasite chicks did sort of kick all the host chicks out or kill them all, then very quickly you'd have no host left. You'd have a generation where all of the hosts raised parasites and no baby host chicks. <laughs> right. And two years later, there would be no host adults. And so the parasites have to stay somewhat rare because there have to be enough host nests around. So if the parasites start getting too common, the host will get rare 
and that will then cause the parasite numbers to come back down because sure. there won't be many host nests. Although I would hesitate to call parasites rare because brown-headed cowbirds, common cuckoos, are, are very common birds, but they're not like dominant you know. Yeah, I'm not I'm not talking about rare from a conservation perspective, sure, like threatened or endangered. I'm talking about um, sort of relative density. If you find 40 nests of a host species, you're not going to find 40, 40 parasites. Yeah, of course. You're going to find three or four. And so when you're trying to study the parasites, it means that you have to monitor a very large number of nests of the host to start getting a large sample size of the parasites. Yeah, of course. And you can imagine it's kind of difficult to find both a large number of nests and a large number of nests in the correct stage for an experiment like this. So here they put a clay model egg in 40 nests, and they basically ended up with a sample size of four for the egg rejection. <laughs> right. But, I mean, they, get, they had a sample size of 40 for the host not rejecting the models. But in terms of a parasite coming along and finding a clay egg, that only happened four times when they put out, I'm sorry, it wasn't 40, it was 20. They put out 20 clay eggs and a parasite laid an egg in there in four out of those 20 cases. Yeah. So it actually takes kind of a lot of work to get just a few samples. And that, I think, will kind of always be the case with parasites because they just are always gonna be rare in comparison to how many hosts there are. Yeah, and you know, Parasites have been studied most at this kind of egg stage, but they also have a bunch of strategies once they're nestlings. So like um, frequently the parasite eggs have a, a slightly lower incubation time than the host eggs. And so the, the nestlings, parasite nestlings hatch first and then can kind of kick eggs out or are bigger by the time the other nestlings emerge and then can injure or get rid of the other nestlings. There's, so there's all kinds of dynamics that could be happening there. But, um, you know, once you get to the nestling phase, it's then another level of complexity and difficulty in uh, studying those birds. We should also say, just to clarify, that um, not every brood that has a parasite in it fails to rear any host chicks. Sometimes people, or sometimes birds successfully rear both the parasite and at least one host chick. So it's not like an either or zero sum game. Yeah, and so that, I mean, you might ask the question, why has this host not evolved any defense? Why can it not detect a parasite egg and kick that egg out? Right. Um, and one hypothesis that I don't think has been tested much at all, but that these authors talk about is, um, we know that it's the case with, that when the cuckoos come along, they frequently kick an egg out if there's another cuckoo egg there, they'll kick the cuckoo egg out. If there's no cuckoo egg, they'll frequently kick one of the host eggs out. Yeah. So if you're a host and you've laid four eggs and a cuckoo comes along and lays an egg and kicks one of your eggs out. So now you've got three eggs left plus a cuckoo egg. If um, you kick that cuckoo egg out somehow as the host, then you're down to three eggs. If another cuckoo comes along, they're gonna lay an egg and kick another one of your eggs out. Now you're down to two eggs. However, if you leave that cuckoo egg in there, you've got three of your own eggs and one cuckoo egg, and another cuckoo comes along, you're likely to see what we saw in this study, which was the cuckoo kicks the other cuckoo egg out. And so you've still got three eggs as the host. And right. so this might be some sort of a dilution effect where they, there might not be a strong pressure, selection pressure for the host to kick out that cuckoo egg 
because if they leave it there, it sort of acts as a magnet for the other cuckoo's uh, ejection behavior. <laughs> totally, basically. totally. It's a decoy. And you'd imagine you'd also have to have very high probability of being able to select which one is the cuckoo egg because if you accidentally kick out one of your own eggs in an effort to get rid of the cuckoo egg, that's a really high cost behavior as well. Yeah, and this has been studied in a lot of ways. So there's all kinds of cases where birds feed things that are not their own chicks. So if you've ever seen a bird feeding a brood parasite, so if in North America, if you've ever seen a grasshopper sparrow feeding a, a brown-headed cowbird chick, um, or if you're in Europe, if you've seen a bird feeding a cuckoo chick, the parasites are huge. I mean, it's the brown hilarious. cowbird <laughs> is three times the size of the parent that's feeding it. I know, and you just see these tiny frantic parents of shoveling food into the mouth of this giant gaping baby. And you think, man, they've got to be able to figure that out. I mean, birds are, are they have a high ability to recognize other species. Sure. You, you, you don't see them trying to mate with other species frequently. They can recognize other species based on sound. Yeah. They can recognize other species based on sight when they're looking at adults. So they right. clearly... they're not incapable of, of knowing what is like me and what is not like me. Yeah, it's not that they don't have this ability. It's that for some reason, they have evolved not to use this recognition ability with chicks. And so why would that be? Like, why would you not do this if you could? And the answer has I got to know. be that there must be a very high cost if you do it and get it wrong. And and that's, I think, the case. If you, if you are trying to detect which nestlings are yours, and you guess wrong, and you kick out your own nestling, that's a very like high-cost uh, action to take. That's and somehow worse than feeding the wrong nestling for... Yeah, potentially. I mean, I don't know. I guess especially if brood parasites remain kind of rare in relation to the population. Uh, you know, there are only four parasites in the 20 nests here. Um if these birds had a behavior where they kicked, where the host kicked eggs out of the nest, if they guessed wrong more than four out of 20 times, then that would be clearly worse than the parasite right. in this case. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you would, but I don't know, still, they're very successful at discriminating other species when they're adults. It's bizarre that they can't do this. I wonder if there is a point at which, they, I mean, I, I kind of doubt that this is true, but I, it seems possible that there's a point in the fledgling stage at which you might think, boy, this baby can't be mine, you know, and then you stop feeding it, but then it's already big enough to be a successful fledgling. Ah, uh, yeah, but, but the, I think the main problem with that, Ellie, is that the later you get in the breeding season, the higher the cost is because you've lost more of your breeding season and yeah. you've invested more time. Right. So if you can detect an egg a few days after it's been laid, no big deal. And you kick it out. Even if you kick out your own, you've only invested three days of effort in that egg. Yeah. There's plenty of good weather in front of you. You can lay another egg. But if you incubate the eggs and you hatch them and you feed these fledglings for a week or two, and then you decide, oh no, this one isn't mine. I'm going to kill it now. You've probably lost your chance to lay another egg and have another brood or potentially. So sure. the cost of rejecting uh, a, a nestling is probably much higher than the cost of rejecting an egg. Is yeah. my guess in most right. cases, at, I would at least that's in, right. in birds in seasonal areas like like the temperate zones, the high latitudes. So I would guess that you would more frequently find strategies where they're rejecting eggs 
because the cost of getting it wrong is lower than the cost of rejecting of incorrectly rejecting a nestling. A nestling, sure. And there are there are bird species that reject parasite eggs. There are bird species that will abandon their nest if they know that a parasite has laid an egg in it. Yep. The gray jerrygon is not one of those. In fact, they talk about cases where they know for sure that the gray jerrygon parents have watched a cuckoo lay an egg in their nest, and the parents still don't abandon the nest. They still don't <laughs> eject an egg there. So, right. so they're pretty indiscriminate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely the opportunity for these jerrygons to figure out that they've been parasitized and to sort of defend against that. And it just must be the case that for some reason, accepting that parasite for the population is a less costly strategy than trying to guess which is the parasite and kicking it out. I don't mm. know much about the breeding season in these areas. I wonder if anyone is down in Australia or New Zealand, is this a very short breeding season? Like if a, if a gray jerrygon decided to abandon their nest when they knew it had been parasitized. Maybe they don't have another opportunity. There's no second attempt. Yeah, I wonder how good their second attempt is. Um, you know, if you only have a very short window where the temperature or the rain or whatever is correct, then you might not have much chance to, to try another nest. I don't know. Hmm. So interestingly, I mean, what I think about is interesting about this article and the next article that we're going to look at, which is also looking at um, sort of competition or the lack of it within a same species of parasites. When we think about this, like when I sort of first read the scenario where you have a parasite of one species laying an egg in the nest of another species, what immediately springs to mind is the competition between those two species right. that, that I would expect would be driving the evolution. Yeah, of, of course. And what this has found is that the competition that's driving the evolution, if there is any, is actually competition from within one species. It's within the cuckoo right. species. It's like that arms race that we were talking about at the beginning, but within species yeah. instead of between the hosts and the parasite, as you might expect. And I think, so, you know, sometimes on this podcast we do articles that are uh, interesting topics, but that aren't necessarily real sort of like hot topic areas of research where things are developing quickly. And I think that brood parasitism is an area that is developing quickly, and I think a lot of it is still very poorly understood. I mean, I frequently read articles that have hypotheses, they lay them out, like, like that dilution hypothesis that we talked about here. Yeah. These are good guesses, but boy, am I not convinced by some of them because the studies just haven't been done yet, and people are still really, really working on developing these ideas. Sure, yeah. And even in this study, which, you know, has some interesting and fairly compelling results, I think we're looking at a sample size of four, essentially, <laughs> which is not, frankly, the most persuasive or conclusive uh, thing. Yeah, so I, th I think this is a very exciting area. It's very complex, which makes it exciting, but also makes it difficult. You know, I think it would be a much easier area to study, and we probably would have made more progress on it if it was just always a case of a host competing against a parasite, basically. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or something like that. But, but the fact that there's these competitions within the parasites, the fact that there's these costs to the host of kicking out a parasite if they guess wrong. Right, exactly. This means that there's a lot of ways this is playing out out there. And, um, and so I don't think anyone has really figured out everything that's going on with parasitism yet. No, I, I think people not. are 
taking stabs in the dark, trying to figure out ways to study it, which is not always easy because of the rarity. I mean, this is also cool in terms of just how they did the model eggs. You know, they just made clay eggs. Yeah, it's a fun study design. It's like, what if we just made some fake eggs and put them in and see what happens? Put them in there, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it worked quite well. I mean, the pretty compelling results that those cuckoos kicked out three out of the four eggs. Yep. And the host never did. Yeah. Well, if you want to read this article for yourself um, or look at any of the graphs or anything, once again, it is called Gray Jerrygon Hosts Are Not Egg Rejectors, But Shining Bronze Cuckoos Lay Cryptic Eggs. It was published in the AUK in 2017. The DOI is 10.1642 AUK-16-128.1. You can find that link on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.